You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Hey, what's up? Welcome back to the show. This is David Scales, and today I'm bringing you an episode of Shaping Surfing, featuring surfboard shaper Jeff McCallum. Jeff McCallum builds boards in San Diego, California, with an unwavering focus on quality. Quality is a word that really gets thrown around pretty frivolously in surfboard building. So Jeff explains what exactly constitutes quality, its costs, and how to scale it with the growth of a business. I've never actually ridden one of Jeff's surfboards, but they are a marvel to look at. So I'll post a few on our Instagram account, at Surf Splendor, and I'll link it to McCallum's Instagram account as well. Um, Really great account to follow, unbelievable work. And I know a lot of you have actually been asking for more of the Surfboard Shaper interviews. They are coming. They were a huge part of Surf Splendor when I started the show four years ago. It was really an integral part, actually, a um, monthly format. So I've been remiss to not maintain a very regular schedule of Shaper interviews. Board builders are one of the very few jobs that inform every single surfer's experience. We can't surf without surfboards, obviously. So I have one Shaper interview scheduled per month moving forward, just like the old schedule. So look forward to that. And I'm actually glad to be reinvesting in this format with Jeff. He's somewhat reclusive, so it's been a real treat to spend this hour with him and be able to bring this hour to you, the listener. My goal here was actually to bring you something that you've never heard before, something you've never read about Jeff. Um, And I think that Jeff actually does a really good job at delivering that in this episode. And his engagement with the media, or lack thereof, is just really reflective of his personality. And the fact is that the dude's just busy making surfboards by hand. And um, that's precisely where I found him, in his factory on a Tuesday morning at 9 a.m., just a mere 12 miles north of the Mexican border. So a reminder, this is David Scales. I hope that you enjoy my conversation about shaping surfing with Jeff McCallum. I'll be back at the end of the episode to sign us off. Thanks for listening. really dig your guys whole aesthetic and not just in regard to the way that the boards look but in regards to kind of how you run the business there seems to be like a real clarity of vision I would think on your part I know you got um, a team of guys but like I was watching there's there's this um, Netflix series called abstract yeah. It's a documentary series that focuses on different designers, from like stage designers to shoe designer. Yeah, tinkers. And yeah, yeah, I've heard. Yeah. About, I haven't seen it, but I've heard about it. It's amazing. I've heard if, it's good. Yeah. If you're interested, yeah. but one of the guys, um, he's an illustrator, yeah. and he does a lot of the illustrations for the New Yorker and yeah, their covers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, he was saying, he gave this quote, and it was, um, as an artist, like he's at a point in his career where he wants to create 
recklessly yeah. and edit ruthlessly. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, that makes a, that's kind of represents what I want to do where like in the creation phase, don't edit at all. Just yeah. like create recklessly. Yeah. But then in the editing phase, don't be afraid to eliminate everything that you just did to yeah. kind of distill an essence yeah. of the work. And I see that taking place in, let's say, film or music oftentimes, where the final product they put out is very refined. Yeah. And, um, and probably because in film anyways, they have millions and millions of dollars of budget, so it allows them to spend all the time in post-production and in marketing and all that. But in surfing, I never really see that happen. You know, I see guys, especially board builders, it's like, oh, I just came up with a couple hundred bucks, I'm gonna shape a board and I'm gonna put 30 photos of it on Instagram throughout the process and just yeah. show people the process, which there's a charm to as well. But there's not a lot of people who have like a very kind of defined focus for what they want to achieve. Yeah. And I feel like you guys have had opportunities to grow along the way where maybe you decided not to in an effort to retain the aesthetic and the focus and that yeah. sort of thing. So super long preamble, but yeah, yeah. the question is how much of that was intentional? Well, I think in the beginning it wasn't so much intentional as the plan. It's just okay. sort of essentially who I was. Like I'm not the most social person or the most outgoing or the most people person. So in the beginning I would just make a board. Sometimes it'd be done for a week or two. I wouldn't even call the guy. I was not nervous, but it's just, it's just the way I am. I don't want to go talk to people and deal with that. Hmm. So it kind of kept this sort of mystique sort of thing unintentionally make in the beginning but as the brand and everything and what we did evolved i kind of realized that there was a lot of value to that and then we started doing it more intentionally and planning it um with like through no facebook no social media keeping everything tight keeping it all kind of creating a mystique behind it because mm. Basically, I wanted people to be proud, like proud of owning this and it's something unique and different. If you're carrying one down the beach and someone says, hey, what's that? That makes you feel good, you know? Right. So we're trying to achieve that. In this day and age, there's so much like thrown in your face, right? Like social media, Facebook, like you can't get away from it. And for us, it was important to step back and make it a little bit more unique, harder to get, more obscure, and just went like that, you know? Were there... I don't know, references that you were following who were living by that motto. I mean, I kind of think like Dane Reynolds in a way has done that. Yeah. And and controlled his own media that he puts out, you know? Yeah, for, I was, I was, like, I was born in Colorado. So surfing and culture, all that was so different for me that I never really felt like a part of it or into okay. it. And so in surfing, not really. It just, there wasn't anything specifically that kind of inspired that. It was just... Uh, it's just who I was, you know. I mean, I wasn't that friendly guy. I wasn't going to all the parties, and so it it became this sort of thing, and then it became sort of underground, and then just all about you, and it ran with it from there. And it's still who I am, you know. What I mean, I could care less about going out or going to events, and you know, I had to go. With, well, I went to Sacred Craft this year, or whatever the border show, yeah. but I was there for twenty minutes. Like, I got to get out of here. I mean, really? it's just not my thing, you know. What I mean, just get really uncomfortable in big situations like that. So that kind of added to what we do and then the, the kind of vibe or the essence of what we do kind of carried on from there um it's commendable that you recognized it as an asset 
because I feel like sometimes when I've come up against that in my life, I feel a need to like, I don't know, or I, I need to be on, I need to post a selfie because that's what other people are doing or yeah, whatever, yeah, yeah, you know? Yeah. Well, I think, um, yeah, it's just the way I am, you know I mean? yeah. Even as a kid, I hated going doing that stuff and maybe I'm spoiled or I just want to do what I want to do. You sure. know what I mean? And if it's, people don't think it's the right way to do it, I don't really care. It's yeah. the same way we build boards is I'm going to do them how I want to do it and my way at my shop. And if people don't buy it, it's okay. It's, it's, I'm not going to change what I do to make it fit what's current or a model or whatever, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's what we do. If it's successful and people buy it, great. If not, well, I'll probably figure something else out. I'm not that worried about it. <laughs> uh, well, you talked about growing up in Colorado. Tell me about that and how'd you find yourself in San Diego? Uh, Colorado's cool, you know. I, I grew up there. I was the only one in my family not born in California. Mm. So we had a lot of California ties. And then my dad worked for a company that was based out of California. And so in high school, he was going back and forth a lot. Tuesday to Thursday, he'd be in California. And then back, he was going back, so we'd go back a lot. So I spent a lot of time in the ocean, but not surfing, but body surfing around like Newport, going to Del Mar, all that. But uh, surfing didn't come until I moved to San Diego. And then mm. I went to San Diego State for college. Because we had so much California connection, all my cousins, everybody was here. So we spent a lot of summers and that. And then uh, college came, I wanted to go to San Diego State, so I wanted to I wanted to party and I wanted to be by the beach and have fun. It just sort of fit. So, um, I know you went to college here. When did you actually move to San Diego? Uh, I moved here in 99. So how old were you? I was 18. Oh, okay. Yeah, so when did you actually start surfing? Just after that. So I think my freshman year was 99. I was in San Diego State, didn't surf. And then my sophomore year, moved to PD. Okay. I started surfing with a roommate then. Um, how did you get interested in board building? As soon as I started surfing, out and uh, I wanted to shave. I was just interested in it right away. Okay. And then Josh Hall, he surfed Crystal Pier. He was working for Chris Christensen. Okay. And uh, he was sort of the shop kid, uh, sweeping and cleaning and doing all that. And then uh, he started a wine business. So I said, hey, I'm going to quit. Uh, I'll, go, I'll go introduce you to Chris. And so I went over there and met with him. And then he hired me doing that, sweeping and running errands. Were you... Um I don't know, inclined to work with your hands prior to that? Like, do you come from a background where you're used to? I mean, my dad, he was always in super hands-on. So when okay. we were kids, we'd fix the sprinklers and run and get screwdrivers and tools or whatever else. So he didn't do it professionally. It wasn't like a carpet or anything like that. But he was always making ball boxes or bins or whatever for the house. So for sure, I was in around that in cars. He was kind of a hot rod guy as a kid. So we were always cleaning cars and stuff like that. But Comfortable with tools and yeah, stuff. Yeah, since I was little. And even now, it's still super fun for me to do stuff like that outside of surfboard gym. You, when you, um, in those kind of primary surfing experiences when you were 18, do you remember what you were riding or your first board or anything like that? Uh, my first board was Robert August Longboard. Okay. I got it in for a birthday in Huntington Service Board. Okay. Um, but then shortly after that, I wanted to go smaller, but I really wanted to ride like single finades, little ones, but they they didn't make them. Like this was just before Joel Tudor surfboards and all that. So stuff like that didn't really exist. And some of my friends are sort of high performance surfers. Right. So there's a guy named Wally Puha who is out of Oceanside. Okay. I think he's shaped for American Rusty. He's kind of, he's a go shaper. I think maybe he shapes for chemistry now. Okay. Not too sure, but he made performance shortboards for a lot of my friends and I'd have him make me a performance 
egg single fin. So it's all modern, modern rails, modern bottom, but it was round, little egg, and it was single fin. That's when I started to get smaller and smaller. Okay. But those things didn't really exist, you know, it wasn't, you know, the fish had just sort of started, like that whole first fish craze. So an alternative board or a quiver then was like a short board, you know, 6-0, and then maybe you'd have a fish, but it was pretty rare. The alternative thing hadn't really taken off yet. So that that's what kind of got me into shaping is because I'd want to ride these things. Like I'd like little eggs, like not necessarily round nose eggs, but pointed nose eggs and stuff, but you couldn't get them, you mm. know? And so if I ordered one from someone, it would take so long to get, by the time I got it, I'd want to ride something else, you know? So then I just started making my own stuff, riding. It's interesting. I mean, I, I feel like, um different shapers that I talk to all come from different backgrounds oftentimes, but there's a common denominator of what you just said, where it's just like, I wanted something that wasn't available. And so I had to make it. And for older guys, it's like, I stripped down old longboards because I couldn't find the materials that I wanted to build the shortboard, you know, blanks weren't accessible or whatever. Um, But also the other detail there is, I'd order a board and it wouldn't come for such a long period of time, you know, which is so true about the surf industry as well. Yeah. Um, So that's kind of funny too. Uh, Tell me about that relationship with Christensen. I know in some of the interviews that other people have done with you, you've kind of talked about it at length, but um, how was that? Was he kind of your key mentor or were there other people, Josh Hall, you mentioned involved and who were kind of your primary influences when you got into board building? Uh, Chris was for sure. I mean, he never like held my hand and helped like hold the planer over me and shaped the board, but for sure he was a huge influence just because I went in there knowing nothing, like didn't know a single thing about a surfboard design, anything, how to build it, anything. So he was a huge influence that way. And then Skip's right there. So he was a part, just not so much his design, but maybe his approach and lifestyle, you know, just Skip being Skip. But other than that, I mean, those two are the biggest like hands-on like there you know some stuff i'd read about or like our quad finates came from a stretch article and nathan fletcher and what they're doing with guns and so there's influence like that but that's not direct i mean that's something i read or saw but chris was huge i mean he was uh he's a tough guy you know he's a businessman for sure he's super smart and he's on it you know but he's demanding he wants what he wants when he wants to but you have to be that way to be successful in this business especially you know mm. and so he was tough and i'd work uh for free sometimes i hate chris i'll work all weekend for free if you let me watch you shape okay they go in there and knock one out in 30 minutes you know there you go mm. shape on your boards you know and it was a it was sort of like tough love or, that's kind of a bad way to describe it, but it's like it was it like i'm not going to hold your hand and do this but here's the room here it is go for it and i'm kind of like that way at the kids now it's like we have a shop kid and you're like, hey man, the room's here. If you want to do it, it's yours. You know, yeah. we'll help you along the way, but you got to take the initiative, get in there, stay all night, get ex- you know, get excited about it. Do you have many kids approaching you asking for that? All the time. Do you really? And the most amazing thing is you'll spend the time to reply. 95% won't even say thank you. Really? To reply, yeah, email or direct message, whatever. And when a kid does, I'll always kind of reach out. Even one, like it was so bad at one point, I was telling my wife, like, next kid that says thank you, I'm going to give him a board, a free board, take care of him. No, no one said thank you. Really? Yeah, it's unbelievable. It, it is unbelievable, but I'm not really surprised. It's really a yeah. reflection of where we're at, you For know, sure. as a society. But that's why I asked, like, 
you showing the initiative to Christensen, it's how I grew up. And it's like, I remember I was literally 12 years old going to local liquor stores asking if I could get a job. And one guy gave me a job passing out flyers and then he paid me in product. He was just like, all right, well, buy, you can pick $10 worth of product. And I like got a two liter soda and like some, some candy and then went and drank it with my friends because I just wanted to work, but I don't see that anymore. And I see like so much valuable, like uh, experience on the table for kids who aren't willing to just take it like yourself shapers who want to pass down some sort of tradition yeah. and they need the help yeah, yeah you know and it's shocking that there aren't kids lining up to do it yeah I mean the new kid we have now is good he's a little timid but he's works hard he's down here a lot so we, but now he's starting to shape but yeah I mean even the neighbor he does architectural concrete and same deal he's got sort of a mentor in there and kid goes home at five o'clock you know he's saying when he was doing it he was going home at two or three in the morning just excited to build stuff be there right yeah there's something changing i mean i don't want to be the old guy oh kids these days but you know it's true even when we're building it this the building we're going through all the permitting process the the guy hired some kids from his neighbors the kids quit the same day like didn't even last an hour and you know and he was probably getting paid yeah yeah yeah, for sure they like he's his nephew hey and you're gonna sit around come work with me you know he's a construction guy the kid didn't even last a half a day. Yeah. And he's like, oh, I want to go play video games or whatever, you know? So right. the work ethic's changing, but there's still kids out there that are getting after it. It's just less, you know? And, you know, it'll filter them out one way or the other. Especially well, I agree. Well, what's interesting, too, I think with your Christensen example, your personal life example is, like, listeners of this show are all around the world, and it's probably hard for them to fathom that these people that they read about in magazines like Skip Fry, his door's open. You can just walk up, or Christensen, you could walk up and just offer to sweep the floors and it turns out he needs his floors to be sweeped. And you have access to these people, you know? Was that, was, um, were those guys iconic to you at that time? Did it feel intimidating or was? I, I was from Colorado, you know, so no. When you were in Colorado, did you care about, were you reading surf mags? Uh, I had a subscription to Longboard Magazine, but in Colorado, you look at it, it's the same thing, guys going on some tropical place, and you look at two two episodes or two issues, and that was it. Yeah. So I think maybe that's part of it, too, is I wasn't really intimidated by those guys like Skip. I treated Skip like a normal guy, I thought. You know, where a guy, you'd see people come around and would treat him so weird, and he'd, he'd shy away from it, you know? It took a long, long time for Skip to recognize me or talk to me or be, because he just deals with so many people all trying to take advantage of him. It's unbelievable. You know? Really? Yeah. And I learned, like, with the door open, if his door's closed, do not knock. You know? Like, knock on the door, he'll open it, and he'll be like, what do you want? You know? Because he just wants to work or do what he's doing. But if his door's open, it was sort of the, okay, I could go in there and say what's up and talk to him. And, you know, he, he deals with, it's insane to I me. Mean, the people coming around and we deal with it too Christensen used to deal with it I deal with it here Chris had a picture on his door of like a revolver pointing at you know a photo that says if you don't have an appointment don't come in you know that's part of the reason why we moved down here too it's just I was on Marina and it was non-stop Friday everyone was going to come hang out and you're trying to work you know what I mean right and it distracts the other guys and totally. it gets tough you know 
So it, 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 it is tough. Um, I mean, it's kind of one of the challenges with a small business, I suppose. Yeah, you want to be friends with everybody, but at the same time, you got to run your business. And that's the same reason why we don't do customs anymore. You know, yeah. I had an 18 month wait for a custom board at one point, and the customer service or the logistics behind that is a full time job. Yeah. You know, I'd email all morning until one or two, then try and shape after that. But I wanted to provide good customer service and good support or like, you know, you're waiting 18 months, you probably want to change something here or there. And I want to be able to reply and say, hey, yeah, we could do that or let's do it. But I'd get 100 emails a day and I couldn't reply to them all. You get 100 replies, you know what I mean? So, yeah, that was part of it. Is I wanted to have good customer service, but I didn't have the logistics or the willpower to do it. I'm a one-man show at that point, you know? Well, that's the other thing is... Um you just don't have the staff and the infrastructure to manage all of those details. Yeah, there's not a, it's there's not enough money in it, or That's the thing. and there's not enough volume for what we do. So I marketed this 2015 thing for a long time. It was my retirement, right? But it it was this. I saw the the future ahead. I saw where Chris was and what he went to do, and I had a choice. I could either do that or do it differently. You know, I could try and get a big factory, a big staff produce this thing and keep making these things. But to me, that was a big beast to feed. And it's it's just a machine and you gotta keep it going. And I didn't want that, you know, it wasn't what I wanted. I wanted to keep it tight. I felt like if I did that, my quality would be affected, you know? Okay. And I couldn't have as much focus. So I wanted to keep it smaller. So rather than like retire was just sort of a joke around, you know, friends and stuff, but it kind of spread. But it just, I'm just not doing it customly. I yeah. just can't deal with the volume because I just can't keep up with the demand like that. And I wanted to keep it on point and tight, but I just couldn't unless I hired this big thing. But I see right. value in that. So now we just do it differently. Break that down. Talk about what your business model is for McCallum Surfboards at this point. That's Macallum. Macallum. Yeah. Uh, at this point, you know, I realized too that we're not going to make millions of dollars making surfboards. Everybody knows that, right? So it should be a good lifestyle. It should be fun. It should be surfing. It should be enjoying it, making stuff creative, you know, having fun. But when we had 18 month wait, it, it wasn't fun. You know, people are pissed. You're super busy. You feel guilty going on a surf trip. You feel guilty making yourself a board. Or, so it, it wasn't fun. So the whole point of it now was to kind of diversify a little bit, spread them some things out, not just be 100% surfboards all the time and have fun with it, you know what I mean? Enjoy it, like enjoy lifestyle. And I make myself a board almost every other week. Hmm. And lately I haven't been surfing as much because you know, I have a three month old baby, so time's a little tight, but you know, surfing a lot, that was the whole point. So the business model now is that I just want to enjoy it, you know? And what we've been doing this for 17 years, we're doing the same kind of stuff, same boards we were doing then, we're doing now, you know? and just happens to be that now that they're a little bit, they're popular, you know, alternative stuff and it's sort of trendy, but when it's not trendy, we're still gonna be doing the same thing. This right. is what we do. We've been doing this since the beginning, whether it's trending or not or whatever, it doesn't matter. So I'll keep doing what I'm doing. Uh, if it's successful, it's great. You know, it's a great lifestyle. It's a great way to pay the bills and enjoy it. But if it's not, then I'll adjust and figure something out. But to me, at the end of the day, it's a surfboard. We make a surfboard, that's it, right? It's not curing cancer. It's, you know, it can be good for people and therapeutic or whatever to go surfing, but I'm just making a surfboard. And for people to be so upset over 18 months or, 
it just wasn't healthy for me, you know, because right. you're dealing with this guy who's from Malibu. He's so upset that his board didn't make it, and you're like, man, it's just a surfboard, you know. What I mean? And I enjoyed making them, but I enjoyed making them for myself, mm-hmm. riding them and trying new things and making them, you know, like that versus some rich dude who wants four of them and is upset that he's asked to wait, you know. So yeah. it just it wasn't fun. So what is the current model then? How does somebody order a board? Uh, and what's the turnaround time on it and all that sort of stuff? So what we do is we do 10 customs every six, uh, every three to four months. Okay. Right? So we'll put it on Instagram. Hey, today we're taking 10 customs, whatever you want. And so it'll sell out pretty quick in a couple hours, sometimes less. And then occasionally we'll say, like last week, just I had like three extra blanks and didn't really know what to do with them. And I'd say, okay, we have a 611. We can make a 68 to a 59 three boards and sell it, you know? But then we have our own retail store too. So we have a shop. We, we rented a little back corner of an existing surf shop in Little Italy. So that shop is called Atacama Surf. Uh, Clark opened it, I think maybe a year and a half ago. Okay. And he had some boards in there and we had a retail down here in our, in our building. But after fighting with the city, we needed to generate a little revenue from that space. Cause I had this vision of these container stores, pop-up stuff, but it would have been tough to permit it and get it done. It would have taken time. So I approached Clark and said, hey, let us rent this little corner. Essentially, it'll be our little retail. We'll take all the profit from it. We'll pay you rent. And then anyone that buys accessories goes through you. And it's doing good. So we have a, you know, I don't know, 30-something boards in stock pretty much always. Okay. They vary from, every, you know, shape to size, fins, everything. So um, you could go there or occasionally do customs on Instagram. But other than that, that's it. So 30 boards in a one retail space yep. that are available for walk-in. Yep. And then occasional customs. Yeah, and he'll post them online if they're avail- if they stay in the store for over 30 days. Okay. So what's happening is they they sell quick, and he'd post them up and it'd sell, and he'd spend all this time. And so basically, he just puts them in there. We kind of say they're in there. I don't post too much anymore about them on Instagram, but uh, we say they're there. People want to check them out. They do, and if they are there for 30 days, he'll post them online. So if somebody sends you an email from Japan, let's say, um, through your website and wants a board, but you're not taking customs, do you just funnel them to the retail? Yeah, we try to. Atacanda, you said? Atacama. Yeah. Atacama. Yeah. Right. It's right across the street from Ballast Point. In the okay. Little. Cool. Yeah, I mean, Japan's a little tricky because we got distribution there, so we, oh, don't, okay. we won't ship to Japan. Got it. Uh, but if you come in, buy it, and walk it out the door, well, that's fine, you know, because a lot of guys will buy them and then resell them on Japanese eBay. Really? Yeah, they'll pay retail and take them over there. We'll ship them and they'll mark them up and then undercut my distribution guy. Right. Yeah, so that was part of the reason why we stopped uh, selling to other retailers too is a lot would go to Japan and that kind of stuff. And he's invested a lot of time and money in me. And he's been uh, super supportive and super helpful in everything, you know. So we, did, we wanted to keep that relationship thriving, you know. And he was getting undercut. You know, and now in Japan it's five or $6,000 in a magazine and he does two a year per contract in he was getting undercut so we kind of eliminated that by going to our own spot and yeah and two it's the same it's just the way i am is i want to control what i do you know and yeah if we can make a little bit more on the markup on the retail end to keep this thing going it's good you know there it's funny there's no shame in that like but i feel like the surf industry thinks that there is but the reality is it requires money to run a business and to do things correctly and the surf industry for so long, the board building industry, ran on bro deals. Yeah. 
and it's just like, hey, and you, people are making razor thin margins yeah. just to put food on the table, and um, it's just not a good way to run a business, you know. No, and, <laughs> like, and my wife did the books for a little bit. In the first quarter, we gave away twenty thousand dollars in discounts. What? Yeah, one year. So. Part of the retail is sort of eliminating that is people can't come to me anymore. Like, because I have a partner in the retail, a Japanese guy too. So it's not my board anymore. I sold it. The, it's a different business. Mm-hmm. They bought them from me. So I don't own it anymore. And everything goes through that. You know, and our boards are super expensive, but we're the only glass shop, surfboard factory in the state that's built the current California code. I guarantee it. We're legit 100%. You know, some are built before and were legit then, but any remodel, you change the shaping room, you got to bring the whole building up to code. Right. I went through it for a year. So I'm the only legit shop in the state. And there's a price to that, you know? Especially in California, there's a price yeah. to that. It's super expensive to run yeah. a business. And it's getting more expensive, you know? Now yeah. we have air pollution, air pollution control district. Yeah. To apply for a permit was $3,200 last month. Wow. Just to apply, you know? And they're not, yeah, I mean, I'm not going to get into that, but. It's California, you know, and we got shut down for a year and it's not because we're a national city, you know, it's a small city. So, you know, there's one inspector, one fire inspector and they talk, that's how we got caught, but they're not enforcing national city rules. They're enforcing California building code, California fire, fire yeah. department. So California's tough, man. I mean, totally. it's really, really hard. If I didn't surf or make surfboards, I would not run a business in California. That's for right. sure. Right. Well, um, I'm curious about the business of uh, the surf business. I always like to mm-hmm. kind of tease that apart. Um, you said you've been doing this for 17 years? I think so, yeah. That's 2000. Crazy. Two, yeah, 2000. How long have you been in this location? Uh, three. But we're, well, in the 2014, we started to move in. I applied for a permit. It was $12,000 to build a thousand square foot permit. So I just said, screw it, and I built it, and then I got caught. Right. And so then we were shut down for a year to get up to the permit process. Okay. And being down here as a small city, it, we got caught because of it, but it was also super helpful because yeah. there's one inspector, one fire marshal, and I could go down there and talk to them directly Good. You know, and create a relationship. They knew we were struggling and they're, they're not going out of the way to be dicks or make it harder. They're just doing their job and enforcing California code. And there's reasons for it. I mean, as obscure and as weird as it can be. There's a reason for it. And so they're super helpful. I mean, there was a conversation guy called me at six o'clock at night. We talked for an hour on phone at home. I'm sure he's at home too, trying to get through this. So the small city really helped me. The national city really helped me. If I was in the city of San Diego and it got shut down, it would have been tough. Yeah, uh, just going uh, through layers of bureaucracy. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it would have been impossible probably. I mean, it's borderline impossible down here with someone you could go speak to and they know you yeah. versus some random guy, you know, so. When you're hiring for a small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role, and there's no faster or effective way than through LinkedIn Jobs. Your time and capital are precious, and there is a powerful resource that can help you focus on what you're good at and integrate people into your team seamlessly to help grow your business. LinkedIn Jobs has created the tools to find the right professionals for your team efficiently and for free. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. Everyone is already on LinkedIn with their resumes and references, and now LinkedIn has designed a hiring platform to connect you with candidates specifically qualified for the job that you post about. More than a billion professionals meticulously organized to connect people by skill set to help us all advance our position. 
2.5 million businesses already use LinkedIn for hiring, and 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. It's that fast, easy to use, and effective. LinkedIn Jobs can help you write job descriptions, filter the right person to you, and give you the tools to help you interview them like a pro. LinkedInjobs.com slash surf is where you go to post your job for free. Yes, totally free. That's LinkedInjobs.com slash surf to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. So, as you're jumping through those hoops and trying to figure out your workspace and all that sort of stuff, um, your focus is obviously on quality yeah. board production. Yeah. I would love to tease apart for the listeners, what does quality surfboard manufacturing even mean? Yeah, it's tough because nothing's perfect, you know? Yeah. uh, We strive very hard to make them perfect, but there's mistakes and blemishes. You can mix two batches of resin or take one batch of resin, split it in half, catalyze same amount, and they'll both go off different. There's impurities in resin. It's not perfect. It's not perfect science. So, yeah, quality... We're, I'm super picky, and I keep it all in-house for a reason. And I always thought about, okay, I can just shave. You know, Skip just shaves. He does good. You know, other people do it. I'll source the glassing. But I run my shop on a super tight ship. Like, we start them on a Wednesday. We finish them the following Friday. No questions, right? There's a process, an assembly line. And we'd outsource stuff, and they didn't run that way. You know, and so some boards would get done in two weeks, some would take three months. And that affected my cash flow a ton because I've got a batch of boards going to Japan, they're not, you know, can't get paid until they're all done. One's taking three months, you paid for the one, you know, so that was tough for me. And then being shut down, I realized I, I have to control this, you know. And, you know, I pick 99% of the colors, probably maybe 90% of the colors in the color work we do. Um, and a lot of it's on the fly too. And Alex helps too a lot, but. You know, I'll describe a color and it'll come out a little bit different or, you know, you do a magenta twice. One time it's a little bit more purple, one time it's a little more pink. And then we'd adjust, change the pin line as it goes through. And so I, so I'm super hands-on with all that and outsource it. Uh, it, it. The glass shops we did choose were great. I mean, we went to Diamond at first and their, their quality is insane. Uh, the management there is not quite insane, you know what I mean? <laughs> so that was tough. But then... We went to custom surf glass, GNS surfboards, and their quality was great too. I mean, it, it was getting better because my boards are weird and complicated. And so we kind of worked with them and by the end they're on point, you know what I mean? Just not that their boards are bad, but it just takes a while to get like how I want my pin lines or how. Sure. So it, it took a minute and by the end they were doing great. Um, but still they couldn't get them done quick, you know, like, like we can. And yeah. It's super, super rare to have an assembly line like we do, but it, you know they they can count on it it's consistent work and consistent money yeah and the only way i can make any money is consistency right that i can count on them getting done so i can spend the money produce them get them done two weeks get paid and do it over because the profit's so small 
Right. If one's held up, they're screwed, you know? Right. And if we outsource glassing and there's one board behind or one mistake, we got to reshape it. All your profit's tied up in that one board, right? Right. So it, it's, it's tough. So you, it's got to be tight. In regard to the aesthetic that you're trying to achieve, yep. obviously it's easier to do when it's in-house. Um, where does it even come from? Like, what is driving the aesthetic? Because the boards are beautiful, but they also all fit kind of a, um, like I was saying when we opened up, just kind of an end design goal. Like, they all look like your boards. Yeah. Um, it's hard to say where it really comes from, you know? I mean, it's just... It's just what I like to do. And even when I was at Christensen's, I'd do like a blackboard and guys would laugh at me like, oh, it's going to melt wax. Or before that, I'd order a blackboard and they wouldn't make it, you know? Hmm. So um, I don't know. It, it doesn't really come from anywhere in particular. I just just like the way they look, you know what I mean? So we just do it like that. And I think it's probably a hot, like from my dad being a hot rodder, street rodders, there's a lot of like custom pin lines and contrasting colors. And, I think maybe a lot of it came from that, but there's definitely a unique aesthetic to what we do. And I've heard people say that a lot, like you can tell when it's one of ours, you know, mm -hmm. from a while, from a, you know, a mile away or whatever. But I think it's just what we do, you know, and, and I don't know, there's no like real explanation of why we do it like that. It's just what, what appeals to us or to me, you know? I guess what I mean to say is like, um, if there's like an, it's more akin to art, than yeah. it is to actually creating, um, you know, I, I don't know, a functional what vehicle or yeah, craft yeah. or whatever. So it's almost like you're the artist and you have this design aesthetic and then you build this functional art form to achieve the aesthetic. Yeah. Not to say that the function doesn't work, but for whatever high performance shortboard brand that anybody could think of off the top of their head, yeah. you go look at them on the rack and they're all just white sanded boards yeah, that yeah. look the same not only as the boards within that brand but they look the same as the boards from a different brand as well yeah and so your stuff again has you know a lot of attention to detail that those boards don't have yeah and i think the shortboard has been so refined and by such high level surfing that those things there's not much more you can change to them i don't i mean i'm not really into them so i don't know but you, they're pretty refined, they're pretty dialed, and whoever dialed those in from the beginning, probably Merrick and Kelly and whatever, so they're kind of there, and there's not much you can tweak them. You could come up with a new gimmicky tail or something, but it's relatively the same. Mm -hmm. But the alternative surfboard world, to me, is sort of endless, you know? I had one shortboard guy kind of ripping me off for a long time, and he was talking about, oh, the overlap and all this, so, I got three blanks, three 6.8 RPs, and I made a same template, same outline, or the, you know, the same template, original template. I made like a 6.6 six step up, a little 5.10 squash tail, pointed nose egg, and then a full mini Simmons with the same template and the same exact blank. And so the, the possibilities are endless, you know? Yeah. And everything essentially works, really. It's just a matter if it works for you, you know? Sure. It might, and what, I, what works for me might not work for you. So, the alternative world I mean the possible you could I make pretty much a new board every day we don't really do models anymore okay. you know we don't really do stuff like that it's just pretty much go in there and shape whatever I want to shape you know and every board is different and if you come to me and you're like okay I want to you know a summer board I'll adjust it you know make a wider tail or more volume or flatter you know so that stuff's endless so what how do you define what style of boards you're building 
you keep saying alternative shortboards. Is that what it is? Yeah, I mean, people ask me that. What you know, random people. What do you make? I say alternative surfboards. You know. Okay. And most of them are short. Most of them are under six six. You know. Okay. But uh, we do some mid lengths, and lately I've been surfing less, so my boards are getting longer. So we're making a little bit longer boards. You know, because I, mean? I was riding five twos and stuff a lot. But um, yeah, it's it's alternative, all alternative surfing. What dictates that the style of boards that you're making is it um, based so, on your own surfing experience and the ways yeah, that you're surfing? It's seasonal, you know. So right now, spring, summer, everything's shorter, wider, flatter, thicker, and then winter will start coming, and I'll start making step ups, guns, and it's pretty much what I'm riding, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so it's all seasonal. Yeah, there's a lot of diversity in the waves around here too. So yeah, yeah San Diego is. Uh, the alternative surfboard world, I believe, comes from San Diego. I mean, we have such a variety from the cliffs and the fish and now all that started. To, we have blacks and punchy beach breaks and reefs and big, everything in between, you know. Mm-hmm. And so whatever you make can fit and work somewhere in one of those zones, you know. So it, I think the surfboard design, there's so much coming out of San Diego is because of that, the diversity mm-hmm. of the surf, you know. Yeah. Um. It's interesting. I think like there's there are some shapers who don't even surf anymore. Yeah. They started surfing and they don't they haven't surfed in 20 years, but they're still building boards and maybe it's they're re- developing their craft based on feedback from team riders or something like that, but uh, that's always been odd to me. Uh, me too. Even like when I was coming up, I was coming up at the same time as another guy and he didn't ride his own boards. Really? Yeah, but I got all my feedback from myself. I mean, right. I'm not the world's greatest surfer, but sometimes some guys, shapers surf so good, they can ride anything and their boards are kind of junk, you know? So I felt like I was good enough to know what was going on and, and feel it and, uh, and adjust. And yeah, I mean, I don't surf as much right now at this moment just because the baby and stuff, but I still surf. If it's over four feet or a certain size, I'm surfing no matter what, you know? Okay. I mean, that's what kind of motivates me these days. It's got to be solid and, you yeah. know, but... I just, if the waves are small, I feel a little guilty sometimes, you know, like middle, I got a lot going on right? with everything. So yeah, I think you have to surf. If, if, if I didn't surf, I wouldn't make surfboards. There, there's That's a, better, there's a better way to make a living, you know, totally. in other places, you know? Um, regarding the aesthetic, what is, I know you use currency in your logo. Yeah. Is it all American currency or yeah. I've seen other stuff? Too. Yeah, we occasionally would get other stuff, you know. But What's the idea behind that? Well, it started because the we were getting logos printed, and the guy printing them was a notorious lagger. Like, oh yeah, yeah, I'll print them tomorrow. They'll be in the mail, and then three weeks and months would go by. And basically, I didn't plan ahead, and I ran out. And so I'd put a dollar on a board, like number three or four back in the day, and just had one and put it put it on. And I'd a get one dollar bill. Yeah, one dollar bill, and I'd get a little wood burner, and I'd burn his eyes out and make it kind of trippy and cool, and then. They've actually evolved, so I can see the logo and know kind of what era or what shop it was at by the guy's face and what I've done to it, you know. Uh, but occasionally, we had one guy gave us a peso, a Mexican peso from the 60s. It was all pretty good shape, a little beat up, but it was really cool. It had like, a, like an Aztec calendar on it. It's super detailed. So rather than use a brand new pin, I use a really old Posca pin. So when I signed it, it was a little faded, you know. And occasionally, we get really cool ones. We get a lot of like Costa Rican dollars or... You know, but the the old peso was it was really cool. I posted it on our Instagram just because yeah, you know, it was bitching. We do a hundred dollar bills there occasionally too, 
I was going to do a series where I did everything start to finish, you know, the boards, because I used to do that. Um, and I was going to do $100 bills, but I, just, I shaped one and it sat for like four months. I just didn't have time to glass it and it just went through and just put a normal logo on it. <laughs> They're actual real currency? Yeah, $100. Uh, I mean, I mean, I know you're not allowed to recreate currency, so there'd be a legal issue with that, but are you even allowed to deface and put money into boards? Well, I actually researched it with a lawyer. So what I was told is that, you know, you see those pins for sale and they have like money ripped up in them. Right. But inside that pin is a dollar or, you know, less. And they sell the pin for $5. So as long as the value is higher than what it is, it's okay. Really? What I'm told. Yeah. Huh. But... Uh, yeah, we're a little hesitant on some of that stuff just because you never you never want that call. But yeah, um, yeah. But you're not you're definitely not allowed to replicate it, right? Like if you made yeah. a laminate out of a dollar. Yeah, we probably get in some trouble for that one for right. sure. Right. Yeah. So does every single board have no. a version of currency in it? No. Okay. It's less and less. Okay. Overseas they do because they love it. Like when we go to France and build them, we do it there, and you can do it there. Like you can take money and deface it in Japan, American mm -hmm. money. So overseas we do, but here we do occasionally, less for sure. Okay. And just because our logos, it's actually card, you know, like the guy, Alex will be working and I need logos and I got to make each one right. versus if we do have screen printed on, he just cuts them out and goes. So sometimes it's hard to sit down and make logo. It takes some time. So we've kind of shied away from that a little bit and doing just our classic logo. We found a, ba a batch of them. So okay. we can start to use those again when we move. Yeah, I love it. I mean, yeah, cool. from again, I continually refer to the boards as art. Um, I don't know, I'm at a point, or I've been at a point for a long time where it's like, I want to ride things that are interesting. Yeah. Not only ride, the wine that I drink, I prefer it if it has a story. I don't want to just yeah. buy Kendall Jackson off the shelf in the grocery store. Like I'd yeah. rather buy something that they made a couple hundred cases of that like maybe I know the guy, the winemaker, yeah. yeah, yeah. visited or whatever. The cheeses that I eat, I'd prefer to eat artisanal. Like, yeah, yeah. You know? what? And that goes back to the pride of ownership, right? And, yeah. and I think the whole global economy is changing like that. Like the Walmarts, you go in there now, it's, it's just junk. I mm -hmm. hate going in there, you know, versus you do a little research and find something that's quality and then you're proud to own it, right? And mm -hmm. it, it feels good to have something that's going to last and you could pass on to a kid or something that has a story. That, a story. Yeah, and a background that someone else put their passion into it. So it's, I think it's all shifting that way. And yeah. it's good for us and it's good for all the small guys like the architectural concrete guy. He builds countertops and sinks and stuff out of concrete where you could go to Home Depot and buy a sink for $49. It's, I don't know, 3000 or whatever. But... There's a pride in ownership of that. It's badass, you know right. what I mean? So I think it's a good shift. And the junk that people buy or used to buy is going away, you know, and yeah. it, it relates to everything. You see it. You see coffee shops popping up that are well, small. It's. I wonder, though, is it going away? I feel like both are growing. I feel like there's no middle maybe anymore, but yeah, like yeah. people either want the yeah, artisanal thing yeah. or then there's more Starbucks than there's ever been before as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah for sure. I mean, there's a market for both, right? I mean, you go yeah. to Walmart, it's still busy. Exactly. But but it's that's it's busy because that product is disposable. Yeah, yeah. People who are buying that sink, they end up buying 20 of those sinks throughout their life as opposed yeah. to the one $3,000. Yeah, yeah, you know? for sure. And then you do that a few times, you go, wait a minute. Right. You know? Or like, I like custom knives too. Like, you could go buy a cheap SOG or whatever 
or you could buy a custom one and wait and but when you get it there's something about it that somebody put their time and energy and blood and sweat into this thing and it's really cool you know are you, you talking like some, kitchen knives or? Uh, like folding knives and stuff okay yeah the guy from mitzvah surfboards rick cloud he does all our wood fins and they're insanely like the detail he does in that are amazing but then he does custom knives and they're full next level i mean really yeah he'll post them on his instagram how he's building them and it it's raw steel and raw carbon fiber and he'll build a knife out of it that folds and has ball bearings and I mean, it's amazing. And the way those guys take orders and stuff is like beyond next level because they don't take orders. And then it drives the whole market up for these things for everyone who's doing it versus like some guy just mass produce. Oh yeah, whatever, I'll knock these things out. You know, all these guys, every custom knife maker, oh, I don't take any orders, I don't take any orders. So then their whole value is just insane. You know, I was looking at some are $15,000 for a custom knife. Yeah, some are three thousand dollars. You know, they're they're insane. You know, but because they end up on the gray market, maybe. Is well, they'll have knife shows. Rick tells me about these knife shows that you have to pay to get in a couple hundred bucks, I think, and then you put your name in a hat to buy this like twenty thousand dollar knife, right? So you put your name in the hat to buy it. If you get picked, you can buy it and then go straight outside and sell for thirty grand. There's guys waiting. Right. Yeah. So there's a whole gray market, but. If it's exclusive and tight, the secondary market goes way up. I mean, that's happened with us once we start saying no. Our secondary market has gone up a lot. Mm-hmm. And we control the secondary market a little bit. We'll buy a lot of them to keep it, you know, to keep it tight. Because it's what we do, you know. I, that's how I live. So I want to control as most of it as I can. Right. So we'll buy a lot of secondary market and, you know, go from there. It's fascinating. Um, you said that's Mitzvin Surfboards? Yeah. Mitzvin. It's two partners, Bob Mitzvin and Rick Clow. Right. And Rick does the fins and the knife, and Bob does the shaping for them. Um, I'm curious, what's your relationship like with Visla? Uh, it's great, you know. For me, like, same sort of thing is, like, when they first approached me, I was super hesitant, you know. And not because of them or anything. It's just I didn't want the exposure. I don't want to be in ads and all over the place and you know they they came to me saying we want to do this and I said I, I don't know you know it's it, it, it's I'm just not comfortable with it and I think it would affect us in a negative way and it took them a minute to understand like most people want to be all over the place and exposed but I just wasn't comfortable with it nor do I want to spend the time to go do photo shoots and stuff so when it came to me I was super hesitant but then you know after talking I didn't know Paul Naday or any of the guys involved I just I'm not really part of the surfing industry or really paid much attention to it but after asking around and learning about Paul and Vinny and those guys as they were highly respected in the surf industry and you know people said Paul's tough and he's a tough businessman but he's honest and he's legit and so to me I gravitate towards people like that like if you're tough in business is fine with me but if you're honest that's most important in black and white and that's how it was and so for me it was more like okay I could be associated with these guys in this startup company and see how it works and see how they run and learn from them so that's why I chose to do it versus the exposure and being all over and so they've been great I mean for a company like that to take a step you know, a leap of faith and a sponsor or take care of a guy like me is huge. You yeah. know, like a mitzvah back in the day couldn't even get a free t-shirt. <laughs> and let alone these guys are now going to like take care of me and support me and sponsor me. I mean, it was a huge leap of faith. And guys like mitzvahs are the guys that run the surf industry, whether the big companies wanted to believe it or not. You know, like 
there are certain shapers or big ones that you can't even talk to them or see them but bob mitzman deals with a hands-on guy every single day someone's in there ordering board talking to him right and so they're the they're the driving force we are you know what i mean and for Vista to see that or those guys to see that was huge you know and it's changed the game i think and you know the shortboard stuff is sort of died and gone its way and the competitive surfing like I don't know. It's all the surfers I know don't care about it and don't pay attention. So this has been uh, it's been great. I've been stoked to be a part of it from the beginning. You know, it's I think I was in their first ad, mm-hmm. and I'll have that forever. It's cool, you know. Mm-hmm. So I think it's it's been a good thing. Hmm. And sitting down with those guys, it, occasionally I'll get to go up there and sit down with Paul and everybody and Vinny and Rob and it's amazing just to listen to what they think about the surfing industry and how it's changing in e-commerce and business and purchasing and walmart kind of stuff in general because he's been in it in the trenches for how many years you know yeah so he understands it and so you can sit back and, and learn from them is huge you know i think that's a really savvy move on your part because they are a tremendous resource and i think i mean i've heard people say like if you're going to bring on an investor to your business make sure that it's like a mentorship role you know like they're not just putting money into the business and then never paying attention like you want to be able to rely on whatever their area of expertise is yeah yeah and and it took them just a conversation to realize okay we're gonna have to do a little different with jeff and that you know maybe we can't approach him for every ad or everything and sure and now they get it and so i'm pretty selective but i'm happy to help them you know because they've helped me and they've helped i think the surfboard industry more than any other brand ever you know Hmm. by promoting a guy like me or even like a guy like alex he's a laminar he's probably one if not the best laminar in the world he's top three or four but for them to to like take care of a laminator that's that's unheard of you know right those guys are so behind the scenes and those guys too are the driving industry you know i was trying to get a list together of all the board manufacturers you know like the sanders the pinliners the thin guys you know and publish it in the journal but those are the guys you know what i mean without those guys your your board would still be sitting on a rack somewhere you know absolutely and it's those guys make nothing right they, i mean they're doing better now it's like our board prices go up i pay my guys higher than any other factory in the world my center is the highest paid center in the world hands down you know but I'm not, you know, as my prices go up, everyone's getting paid a little bit more because they're doing less, but it's quality and we want them to be able to do it, you know? Mm-hmm. And so it's a tough living in there and the fumes and the dust and they're, they're grinding away, you know? It's, uh, it's not easy. I've sanded a few boards and it, it sucks and polishing's worse and yeah. you know, all of it. Do you have just one guy on your team for each aspect? Like one sander uh, or one laminator? All right, we're a little, it kind of, from when we moved, it changed a little bit, but we got uh, we got a laminator. So Alex will start Wednesday. He'll do Wednesday, Thursday, he'll laminate. And then the fin guy comes Thursday, Friday. So there's one fin guy. So he fins Thursday, Friday, hot coats. Then the sander sands uh, Saturday. And then we have a pin line guy on Sundays. And then the uh, fin guy will then gloss that batch later in the week, Wednesday. So we have five guys. And then a manager. I now have a manager, which I never had before. Uh, his name's Flo. He's insane. I mean, he's not super surf guy, but it, it's perfect. I mean, he surfs, but he's not like super into surfing in the surf industry, and so it, it's perfect for us. Cool. So he does all the logistics, all the stuff that I don't want to do, you know, and replies right. to all the emails, is, you know, and deals with all that. It's huge. I mean, he's great. Um, 
how much of the surf industry do you follow nowadays? Or I guess surf media is more the question. Like, are you watching surf films? Are you reading surf magazines? Nah, none. I mean, zero. zero. Yeah, zero. I mean, uh, I'll watch the comps that Alex is super on into it. If it's, you know, Chopu or Cloudbreak or Pipeline and it's over eight feet and it's like Kelly and John John, I, I like that. I'll get excited and watch that with them. But beyond that, if it's Brazilians and choppy surf doing 360s or whatever, I have zero interest in any of that. Really? And yeah, it's just, to me, it's just hideous. Like the style is just lost. But if you watch Kelly Slater or John John at those waves, it, I mean, it's unbelievable, especially if you surf some of them and you see the power and what they're doing in a wave like that is just phenomenal. I mean, it, it's full next level, so that stuff's cool. But outside of that, I mean, maybe when those are on and the waves are good, I'll watch it for, you know, when they're here working. But outside of that, I don't look at any media or magazines or internet stuff. It's just, for me, like even Instagram, we started Instagram because we were getting ripped off so much. So people are going on my Japanese guy's blog that's like super obscure in Japan. It's all Japanese, but they'd find it and they'd hand like copy a board, even copy the name of the board and then reproduce it. Wow. Yeah. And so I was like, okay, I got to get them out there a little. We didn't have any blog. We had a website that was just a countdown timer and made no sense. And then I was like, okay, we got to get this out there a little bit. So we started Instagram and we do three posts a day. And you know, so kind of to show our presence, like, hey, wait a minute, this is stuff we've been doing for a long time and this is. I didn't like call people out really I just post what we did you know and then uh, even lately I've been doing less because it's now I'll post something and a week later it'll come out with somebody else doing it like we'll do it split down the stringer one side you know and then he'll do it split half of the same thing and so now we're doing less just because it's just it's so instant that it's copied like if I keep something under wraps for a month and get it out then put it that's kind of what we do now we're kind of delaying everything just because it was getting ripped off all over the world and it, that stuff used to frustrate me and I'd get pissed and call people out occasionally but it's just part of the game now yeah. I mean I know what I've done and what I've created in this stuff and then I'm fine with it and it, it just happens you know um, as a fan of surfing if you're not following media like who excites you who's surfing do you love to watch uh, there's certain local people too there's I mean there's a guy named Dylan Jones He's from L.A. County, I believe. He lives down here now, but he surfs blacks, and he's, uh, I think he's a lifeguard in L.A. County, but he's a black surfer, and he is a phenomenal surfer, too. I mean, just solid surf, just super style, super cool. So the local guys like that, really cool. Even even Joel still, I mean, he's an amazing surfer. uh, I'll see, like, some clips of him and, you know, get inspired by that. But, um, you know... it's more local guys and that, and then occasionally you'll see some random. There's that I forget his name, and I'd probably pronounce it. He's an Australian guy. He's riding twin fins at Cloudbreak recently. It's Torin Martin. Yeah, I mean that was amazing that yeah. stuff. And so occasionally somebody like that, you know, kind of get you fired up. But um, yeah. What's your? Um, I you mentioned that you make yourself a board about every other week now. Do you ride other shapers surfboards ever? Not really. I mean. Uh, I had a couple fries, but they're so unique that once you get them dialed, you'd spend like a, a few sessions getting them dialed. You get them figured out, and they're amazing. But once you go back to your board, it was like a whole new learning curve. So really, yeah, they're really trippy, and people are like fry. If you're a fry guy, you're a fry guy, and that's pretty much all you ride. So I I don't really. I mean, I have some other boards from other people. I have a uh, 
I got a, just another fry recently. I got a BK that's still in Hawaii. And then I got Tom Parrish. I have make me like a teardrop, but it turned it into a quad fin. And I was going to ride it up black, so it's just kind of sitting in my house waiting for the right day. But I'd like to start collecting boards from shapers I like. You know what I mean? Like Tom Parrish's boards are so refined, you know. Where would you connect with him? I just emailed him. Hmm. And he, he was super cool and helpful. And, you know, he was like, oh, I don't want to make this quad teardrop. It looks weird. I said, I'll oh, just, just send me a teardrop. I'll do the rest. And hmm. So he sent me a laminated board unfinished. And then we sanded it, glass of fins on, did a cool double pin line matching the logo. And it's it's bitching, you know. Did he build it in Maui? I believe so, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Is that where he lives? Yeah. Yeah, so I think he glassed it He comes out here every once in a while, so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's bitching, you know. Sweet. And like, from you know, back in the day, he was a man, you know. Yeah. More so than a lot of the other guys. I mean, he was super refined. And you can see it today in his shape. The foil and stuff is so killer. Well, similar to your approach, though, where even if he was the guy back in the day, he wasn't a self-promoter. Yeah. So you would never know it unless you were in in the inner circle. Yeah, yeah, which is cool. Um, If you can get one board from any shaper in the world right now, what would you get? Right now? Yeah. I'd probably get another fry. Really? Yeah, they're just so unique, and it just skipped the way he does it. It's just so cool. What would you get from him, or would you let him dictate it? Yeah, it depends what he's into. With him, you can't go in there and say, I want this, you know? It just doesn't work that way. See what he's into. You know, and I love to get like a little egg, like a little single fin egg. My favorite fries are the like, I guess they're called his ghetto years where he was doing whatever he was doing and was living in a shaping room. And they're all logoless, clears, glass on single fin eggs, and just his little pencil mark on the bottom. They're all yellow and beat up because guys were riding. I'm like, if I could get any board, I'd get one of those from that era, you know, or even a 90s Campbell Brothers Bonzer. Yeah. Like, yeah, there's a super rare too they're like the 90s shortboard era but they made some eggs that were like kind of 90s ish a little rocker a little like light and you know more performance and i'd get one of those but that from that era like a contemporary one would still be cool i'd like to get one but uh yeah the older boards like that from certain glimpses of time are cool to me like yeah you know they're just unique a new unique little time period where they're doing their thing for whatever reason and it's you can't recreate that right no that stuff's cool. Um, what's your current relationship like with surfing? Like how often and all that sort of stuff? Well, it's hard with the three-month-old. I would imagine. Know? Yeah, so um, it, like I said, though, if it's over a certain size, like I'm going to surf, I'll figure it out. Um, but right now I haven't surfed in a couple months, which is the longest I've ever gone in a long time. Just it's hard, you know, you're not sleeping and you're up and you've got to be down here and back home, you know, take care of the baby. But um I'll, I'm gonna actually go to the beach tomorrow and just surf no matter what, and just yeah, you know, just gotta get back on it. But before I'd surf it, any time it was over a certain over four or five feet, I would for sure figure it out and surf, and sometimes surf all day. You know, if it's good all day, I'd surf. So it's kind of swell dependent this mm-hmm. last few years. It just what I got a lot going on with the couple three different businesses and other stuff. So. It's just not a lot of time. I almost feel guilty when it's marginal. You know, I like surfing good ways. I've always yeah. liked, and even uh, super into spear fishing for a while oh, and diving, okay. and that was something to do when the waves were bad. But uh, I always like good waves. If I go to Fiji and the waves are marginal, I dive. You know what I mean? So surfing is super important to me. But I just like surfing quality way. Maybe I'm spoiled or like a whatever. But comes uh, with age, I think, and maturity, and like yeah. 
other responsibilities. I've, I've gone through the same thing that you, you're talking about, and I do feel guilty about it too. Yeah. But it's like in my head, I'm still a surfer, but I realize I haven't surfed in weeks, yeah. you know? Yeah, and it's yeah, like, yeah. whoa, how, that's weird. How did that even happen? But yeah. what I also find is that those individual sessions that I get are actually more fulfilling and gratifying than it was when I was surfing seven days yeah, a week. Yeah, for sure. It's like I'm getting more out of less than I used to. Yeah, I noticed that too. Even just walking on the beach. Yeah. You know, I feel it's cold like in the morning. It's, it's something you never noticed before. Or just paddling out and duck diving for the first time in a couple of weeks. You, you never noticed it before, but when you don't get to do it as much and when you do get it it is way more fulfilling and, and you're actually grateful for the cold yeah you're, you're like the cold feels awesome yeah, i yeah, used yeah. to dread it you yeah, know? Yeah, yeah for sure it's weird it is weird but it's still a huge part of my life i still check the surf report every day and if yeah. it's if there's a swell coming i'll make sure i got everything done and soon i'd like to start chasing little swells again you know i went to tahiti to chase as well and i like to do that I'd go to cloud break again stuff like that and yeah. That will be, I think, in my future surfing, it will be more stuff like that. Chasing sure. quality waves. Now you can do it so easy with surfline and all that. You know, before yeah. it was hard, but now you can, you can pinpoint them to the day almost, you know, and so yeah. your, your chances of getting skunked are less highly likely, right. or highly less likely. Um, I'll do that more. Final question for everybody interviewed is just what was the last surfboard that you rode? Uh, the last board I rode, oh, I made a little 6.3 Bonzer little full egg bonzer egg that uh it was actually a try and removable fin system bonzer oh okay so i made one with that to try it and uh i wrote it a you know a couple of days cool and it's still just sitting in the bag waiting for the next little swell do you guys do you ever sell used boards all the time yeah through that, the retail space uh yeah he'll buy them for me okay the guy who owns the shop but uh yeah i do that a lot because i make so many boards for myself Right, that's yeah. what I'm thinking. Yeah, I'll buy them, ride them a couple of times, give them to the shop guys to ride a couple of times, and then sell them. Yeah, and oh. it's great for R&D purposes, you know? Yeah, I mean, I, I made that egg, and then I made myself a little winged pin, kind of like I used to have back in the day. Yeah. Uh, a couple weeks ago, and it's sitting unridden, and then I just made myself a little winged swallowtail for a new Captain Finn we have coming out. Oh. So I designed the board around those fins, and so that's getting laminated right now. Maybe it's next week. Very cool. Right on, dude. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah, I appreciate the time for sure. Yeah, it's good. Jeff McCallum can be found at McCallum Surfboards on Instagram and McCallumSurfboards.com. Everything that he and I discussed in this episode can be found, of course, on SurfSplendorPodcast.com, along with every single episode of Surf Splendor shows, including Spit with Scott Bass, Wax On with various surf luminaries, and this new show, The Grit with Chas Smith, which um, we just introduced uh, about a week and a half ago, and I'm going to have a brand new episode of that with Chaz available for you this Friday. So be for, be sure to look forward to that. Um, that'll be every other week as well. And if you like this show, of course, as I always say, just review it on iTunes. It's important for my ego that we outrank all other surf podcasts, and we are, but we want to keep that tradition alive. So one recent review said, quote, imagine Surfer's Journal and Beach Grit wrapped into a savory summerine sandwich delicacy delivered digitally. 
Bang. I love seeing the reviews. You can support this show by leaving a review or simply just tell a friend about it. That helps the show to grow. Or feel free to make a contribution, a one-time donation, or even a $5 monthly subscription via PayPal. You can find out how to do that on our website, surfsplendorpodcast.com. Any and all forms of support are loved and greatly appreciated. That is it for today. I hope that you enjoyed the show. Make sure to drop a comment, by the way, on Jeff uh, McCallum's Instagram to tell him your thoughts. And I'm grateful for your listenership. So thank you. This is, of course, David Scales for Surf Splendor, reminding you to get in the ocean, share a couple of waves, and shred on. Oh,